You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This week's guest is Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Have you ever felt like cyber is changing so quickly it is difficult to keep up? This week's guest hosts no less than 10 podcasts a week on the topic. From the Cyberwire Daily to Hacking Humans, and from Career Notes to Recorded Future, Dave Bittner is what you might call busy. Dave and Andrew talk the Silicon Valley of the East, state-affiliated hackers, organized crime, and staying cyber safe because it's a jungle out there, people. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. It's long overdue and I've, I've really been looking forward to it, not least because I feel like I've bared quite a bit of my soul to you with our various interviews, Dave. So I'm looking forward to you bearing some of yours. Yeah, I'm looking forward to joining you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I wondered if you could just start off by telling us what you're up to at the moment. I know that you host a number of podcasts. Can you tell our SpyCast listeners about the kind of things that you're involved in at the moment with CyberWire? I'd say that the primary thing that I do here at CyberWire is host our daily podcast, which is a daily news briefing. It's about 20 minutes every day, Monday through Friday, which we like to describe as the the essential news that uh, folks who are cybersecurity professionals or even enthusiasts uh, need to know to stay up to date on the latest goings-on in cybersecurity. And that's a combination of a a newscast, and then we have usually a couple of interviews as well on that show. So that's Monday through Friday. I do a couple of other shows. I do a weekly show called Hacking Humans, which is focused on social engineering. I do another weekly show called Caveat, uh, which is co-hosted with uh, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. That's focused on law and policy. We do a show called Research Saturday, where I talk to a different researcher every weekend to get the details on whatever cybersecurity research they're doing. 
Then I also host the Recorded Future podcast, which is uh, focused on threat intelligence. So it's probably not fair to say I'm the hardest working man in podcasting, but I'm certainly, <laughs> but I'm certainly making an effort, right? Doing what, maybe what I lack in quality, I make up for in volume. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I lost count there. Is that half a dozen or more? 10 shows a week. 10, Ten shows, shows a week. week. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And total. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> How many different podcasts? So the 10 shows a week is five of the daily plus another five? Yeah. So let's say we've got five, five of the daily. We've got Caveat, Hacking Humans, Research Saturday, Recorded Future. And then I do a weekly guest spot on a show called Grumpy Old Geeks, which is someone else's show. I do a weekly security segment on there. So that rounds out the, the 10 every week. And are you a grumpy old geek? I can be. <laughs> I, have, I have my moments. I've certainly qualified. We all do. I, I, there's, there's no more denying that I fall into the old category. No massaging that. So as my wife would say, depending on how well I've been fed, I can definitely be grumpy or not. So but there's, there's plenty to be grumpy about in, in tech, no doubt about that. How do you keep on top of everything? Because that's a lot of material to sort of triage and, and, and in such a fluid and dynamic field. I mean, is, is staying on top of it just the fact that you do 10 shows a week? Is that, is that its own homework or do you have to do additional stuff to kind of keep up to date with what's going on? It's definitely a combination of both. Yes, keeping up with all of the shows and doing all of the prep work that's required for that, that keeps me on top of things. But we have a great team at the CyberWire, our, our editorial staff. They prepare a daily news briefing that goes out via email, and that's an invaluable source for me and, and the rest of our team and everyone who subscribes to it to keep up to date with that. We also get hundreds of incoming story ideas and pitches every day from PR people, from companies, from individuals who are kind of reminding us what's on the top of mind for them. So the news, social media, I stay pretty active on the in info security groups on Twitter, places like that. But you're right, it's a lot to take in. And it does require a lot of time and energy to try to keep up. It, there's one thing about cyber is that it is never boring and it is always changing. <laughs> That's true. And how did you first get into all this cyber stuff? Is this your background or is this something you stumbled into or a little bit of both? It does go way back. I was one of those kids growing up who would always take everything apart and put it back together again and hope that I didn't end up with a few extra parts or screws or things like that. I think sometimes I drove my parents nuts. That, uh, you know, <laughs> I'd get a, a, a toy or a, a tape recorder or something for Christmas or for my birthday. And the uh, first thing I'd do is set off on it with a screwdriver. I was lucky enough to take sort of a computer summer camp when I was in middle school. And this was back in the days of TRS-80s and Apple IIs. And I was hooked, just something that resonated with me right away. I saved up some money, bought my own computer, eventually bought a modem when those were a thing, started uh, poking around on uh, BBSs, you know, bulletin board systems, um, dabbled a little bit with uh, some phone freaking and uh, exploring the international network of phone connections. So that was a, an area of exploration for me as well. I suspect the statute of limitations is, is long gone on my exploits there. You know, went off to college. Uh, I actually came out of school as a radio, television, and film major. 
and sort of rode the first wave of desktop digital video with some colleagues of mine, started a company, ran a, a video and multimedia company for 20 years, left that company, actually sort of got uh, poached away from my, old, my own company by one of my CyberWire colleagues, Peter Kilpie, joined him in what they were doing. We eventually spun off the CyberWire as its own company. Uh, it was previously part of a cybersecurity company in Baltimore. We've been going for about five years from there. So you know, my combination of, of tech, my comfort as a public speaker, all those kinds of things combined made being a podcast host be kind of the ideal job for me. It, it's really been a, a combination of things I've been working on all my life. And I just lucked into this situation where all of those various I don't know, talent, skills, and interests combine, and we seem to be on to something. For our listeners that aren't up to date with the tech scene, the cyber scene, can you help us understand the landscape of tech and cyber around the Baltimore, Washington area? Because, you know, when many people think of like cyber and tech, like they immediately go to the West Coast, the Silicon Valley. Or is there quite a scene around them, the DMV, or help our listeners? Well, (laughs) (laughs) as I'm sure you are aware, being from the Spy Museum, there is this little agency down the road from us here called the (laughs) NSA, and (laughs) they, they are located at Fort Meade which is practically a stone's throw from our offices here. And so because NSA is here and also because we're very close to the federal government, that makes this a large epicenter for federal cyber concerns. So not only are there all the government agencies like NSA, the FBI, you know, all of the, the agencies that are in D.C., there's also a bunch of contractors who are built up around providing those agencies with the things that they need. So because of that, this area has become a tremendous zone for innovation in cyber. There are many, many startups here looking to pursue various products and service offerings and so on. So there are those who say that this area, the, the Baltimore-Washington corridor, is the Silicon Valley of the East I'll leave that up to them to say that. But there's no doubt that there's a lot of activity here, a lot of venture capital money, and a lot of really interesting things going on. That's for sure. We have about a dozen of the NSA Museum's uh, top artifacts at the moment and a special pop-up exhibit. Um, it's a really interesting corridor. So so you would say that, I, you know, I don't want to push this analogy too far, but it's like East Coast and West Coast rap. <laughs> yes. They're both doing the same thing, but there's like a slightly different history. There's a different vibe. There's, you know, That's a different right. pace. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. Here it's more federal. And on the West Coast, it's more, yeah, what people traditionally think of social media and so forth. Yeah, I think that's right. And there there are definitely some rivalries. We like to tease San Francisco. We call that the city by the other bay because we have the <laughs> Chesapeake Bay here. So, <laughs> you know, there's definitely some of that and, and we play into that. But no doubt there's a strong cyber on both coasts for sure. Do you have a beef with anyone out on the West Coast? Uh, hmm, that's a good question. Not that I know of. I, I, okay. I suspect there are plenty of people who listen to our show out of spite rather than pleasure, but uh, hopefully they're few and far between. Just briefly staying on that, for CyberWire, for the various podcasts that you guys push out, are you more fo- are you the go-to source for people that are looking at the more East Coast concerns, the federal stuff, the NSA 
all of the stuff concerning the government and the stuff around the government and the West Coast deals with something different? Or are you also covering that material as well? No, we're covering all of it. We have a global audience. Turns out we're big in France, big in Canada, all over the world. So we try to provide a daily summary of everything that you need to know about cyber. You know, something, I'll give you an example of, of a, a use case. A chief security officer from one of the big cyber companies, actually a Silicon Valley cyber company, say that you know he would listen to our show on the way into work so that when he went into his daily staff meeting, there were no surprises. Right at the very least, at the, at the very least, he was aware of the things that were going to be talked about. He may still have to get details, but he wouldn't go into a meeting saying, "Oh, I haven't heard of that. What is that?" So that's a very common use case for our shows. We we get a lot of students who listen that have been recommended to our stuff to get up to speed quickly you know, by listening every day. You get more of a general awareness of the things that are going on and a sense for what's important. Can you tell us who that was or what company they were from? I would rather not, okay. <laughs> just because I, I haven't cleared it with that person and I don't want to betray any confidences. Okay, maybe you can tell me after we stop recording. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, sure. <laughs> One of the things that struck me, I know that here at the Spy Museum, there are definitely some things that I know a lot about, but there's a lot of things where I'm the equivalent of an internist. You know, so you can't be a specialist in everything. And, and the realm of cyber is huge. Do you guys get some of that where you have someone that they put a lot of stock in being the person that knows the I's and the T's about some very niche area? And then they get back to you saying, well, you know, you never got this right or whatever. Yeah. How, how does CyberWire deal with that being an internist and then being a specialist kind of trade-off? Yeah. I mean, it's something that we deal with every day. Yeah. I mean, we have our own ex internal expertise. You know, the folks, again, on our editorial team have a lot of experience uh, on the civilian side and also the military side of cyber. So we have that expertise to draw on, but then we also have a broad stable of experts who we can go to. We can pick up the phone and say, explain this to me. I, I don't understand what's going on here. I'll share that I think an important realization for me and something that was a bit of a breakthrough, probably, I don't know, six or nine months after I started doing this, I had the realization that it's not my job to be the expert on all of this stuff. It's my job to talk to the experts about all of this stuff. It's my job to represent the person in our audience who wants to know more about this stuff. So I remind our team, it's not our job to demonstrate how smart we are. It's our job to help make our audience be smarter by talking to people who are smarter than us. And so by sort of shedding that ego of having to be the smartest person in the room, I think that's really been helpful both for me personally and also hopefully for our audience that I can represent them by asking that silly question, asking that rookie question that surely there's somebody out there who's asking that question. I'll bet there are some people with higher levels of expertise who roll their eyes you know, when they hear me ask a silly question, but I'd rather ask that question and have it answered than leave it unanswered for the people out there who need to know. 
So what you're basically saying is that you've managed to get over yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I really have. I'm, and you know, I mean, Andrew, as, as you know, I mean, that's not easy when you... It's not. <laughs> one of the things about doing a podcast as opposed to, say, live theater or a live show or anything where there's an audience is that there's no immediate feedback. You put something out there into the world... And you hope that people enjoy it. You do get feedback. You get reviews on iTunes and things like that. You can see the numbers and the number of people who are downloading. And hopefully that heads in the right direction. But the flip side of that is, as you know, if you make an error on the Internet, somebody's standing by to let you know in no uncertain terms the mistake you made. So you have to have a thick skin when it comes to that sort of thing as well. And that that's not easy for me. That's something I've had to adjust to. I, I tend to take things to heart. So having that realization has been very good for me. It's something I continue to struggle with, but it's a good fight. It's a good every time. There are so many times when hubris has bit me in the butt, you know, over and over again, in just throughout my life and through my career, those times when I get to, I start to take myself a little too seriously. Inevitably, that comes back, and and I get, I I learn a lesson. I learn a valuable <laughs> lesson, right? <laughs> I think for me, that's one of the things that I kind of like picked up a while ago when I was doing interviews for some research I was doing. But some people wanted me to go, you know, almost toe to toe with them, and then other people, I was quite happy just to part my ego to one side and then just to try to elicit the information and if someone wanted me to go toe to toe I was happy to do that and if if someone like needed to feel like they were smarter than me I was quite happy to you know let them do that and in many cases they may well have been but I was quite happy to be like I used to call it just being Columbo where I would just you know <laughs> ask stupid questions but actually there's more going on underneath the hood than the person may realize but I was quite happy to subordinate myself just to get the information yeah and and I think as a host that's an important skill is being able to sense what your guest needs to sense where their comfort level is if they need to be the expert allow them to be that if they want to be more conversational to engage with them if they're you have to be able to dial that in that's how you end up having a, a really comfortable meaningful conversation and out of the the various components of cyber what are the things that you're personally most interested in what are the the stories you cover or the things that you do where that really get your juices flowing? I like the psychological elements. I like the human elements. So I think that's why I'm attracted to the social engineering sides of things, the things we cover on our Hacking Human show, why people do what they do, the way that um, how much the bad guys have refined their approaches to short-circuiting our senses to getting us to do things against our best interests, the way they put the pressure on us and convince us to do things that we, we know better than to do. I find all of that fascinating. I also, I mean, to that end, also the human side of the, the cyber defenders that particularly as cybersecurity has grown more diverse, a diversity of thought leads to better outcomes. And that when we started out, it was very homogenous, the, the types of people who are in this industry. And as we've seen it grow and where there are more people coming into it and contributing, I think that is what leads to better outcomes, to have contributions from people who think about things from a different point of view. 
that part fascinates me as well. And that cyber is not just ones and zeros, that human element, we are all humans and we're using these machines. So I think that's the part that attracts me the most. I, I do love the tech stuff. I think it's interesting. The conversations I enjoy most, I think, are about that human element. Give us an example of an episode of Hacking Humans or a story that you've covered that would illustrate this point. Well, I, I think some of these uh, heartbreaking scams that you see where someone has been strung along, let's talk about a, a romance scam. You know, someone who is lonely and vulnerable. Typically, you'll see a middle-aged woman, for example. Maybe she's divorced. You know, she's feeling lonely, isolated. And someone will reach out on social media and they'll have a picture of a handsome, dashing, usually a military man. And of course, it's a, it's a stock photo. Or they've stolen the actual images from an actual military man and they'll reach out and they'll say, hi, you, I don't usually do this, but I saw your picture come by and I just thought I'd reach out and say hello. And they start a conversation and just meticulously they go through and start pressing that person's buttons and slowly over time, you know, they build that person's confidence. It parallels a lot of the things that you all track at Spy Museum of, of gaining the trust, espionage targets, you know, except for in this case, they're, they are out to get that person's money. And they'll say, oh, I, I, you know, I, I really want to come see you, but I, I'm not financially able to do it. Could you send me some money for a plane ticket? And the person sends the money. And at the last minute, they cancel the trip and they say, oh, I'll, I'll you know, I, I look forward to seeing you soon. And so these poor folks get strung along and there are countless stories of people losing their life savings, tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And all because they went along with what they thought was the hope for love or companionship. And at the other end, it's really just a scammer, a heartless scammer who's out to get their money. And there's a whole lot going on there. They're heartbreaking. And part of what we try to do is help inoculate people against those kinds of stories. The more you are aware of how they're done and the, the things to be aware of so that those red flags can be raised, the little voice in your head can say, hold on, I've heard about this. This is a scam. And hopefully we can save some people from having to go through those sorts of things. So CyberWire is like the Moderna for cybersecurity, basically. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> if, if only it were that easy. And I have to say, I mean, it's something that does make me feel good about what we do is that we are trying to help people make the world a little bit safer. And we get letters from people. People write in and say, thank you because of what I heard on this show. Uh, here's an example of someone who tried to scam me and I knew better. And so, you know, thank you for what you do. And so that feels good. It's very gratifying. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. 
demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. For listeners that haven't listened to your shows, is there anything to fear? Are there high barriers to entry? Do you need to know all of the acronyms and all of the jargon? Help us understand like how they can approach it and start to learn about this stuff. This is as approachable as possible. You know, like I said earlier, many of our listeners are students. So something that I remind our editorial team is that it's okay to have things in the show that people who have a higher level of understanding will benefit from or will feel included by knowing that thing. But we never want to be exclusive. We never want someone to feel left out because they don't understand what something is. So as much as possible, as much as time permits, we try to just briefly explain what we're talking about or put things into context. That said, you know, the CyberWire Daily podcast is a bit more focused on professionals. So there is more jargon in there. And that show is so concise that it's harder for us to take as much time to explain things. Some of our weekly shows, like Hacking Humans in particular, and also Caveat, those are more focused uh, or targeting more ge a general consumer audience. So there's more explaining that goes on there. And we've gotten feedback that those audiences are made up more of people who are just interested in the stories and, and not so much cybersecurity professionals themselves. You mentioned espionage not long ago, and I just want to, I want to get a sense of with, with what you guys are doing, where does the world of intelligence and espionage, where does it stop in terms of what you are doing? Because there's obviously quite strong overlaps and there's a struggle that's going on out there between malevolent forces and benevolent forces and states and individuals and institutions. So help us understand how much of an overlap is there? Is that like 50% of what you are covering or is it like 10% or is it 90? Give us a, a sense of that. Like you say, there's so much overlap now. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking as I was prepping for our conversation today and I was trying to put some things into context with you know, many of the things that I know you all are interested in and cover there at the Spy Museum. Imagine if you could go back to the 1950s and, and tell you know, some uh, officer who is interested in espionage that in the future, everyone would be carrying around a device on their body that tracked their location with extreme precision. Not only did it track their uh, location, but it also tracked everything they purchased. It kept track of uh, who they were nearby, their goings, their comings, their conversations, uh, their photographs, their relationships, their intimate moments, everything on this one device that is with them almost all the time. When they don't have it with them, it's on their nightstand while they sleep. If you told that to someone back then, they would say, are you crazy? <laughs> like, why, why, why would anyone do that? And yet here we are and we all do that. So the collection of our data, I think, is fascinating from an espionage point of view. And we've heard the stories where, you know, the espionage agencies they don't necessarily have to put a tail on someone. They 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 can put a, a request in with the service providers and say, 
you know, tell us every cell phone tower this person hit and have a good idea of where someone was traveling. And I think that really, that changes the game when it comes to espionage, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a a brave, uh, scary new world that we're still marching into and we don't quite know the ramifications. And I think the institutions and the other things that we take for granted, they're, they're increasingly struggling to keep up with exponential technological change, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things I wonder about is, are the foundations on which our societies are built, you know, for example, here in the US, our, our constitution, our systems of government, are they properly equipped to deal with the velocity of online life? How much more quickly everything happens? I think many would say one of the features of our system is that it is kind of slow and plodding, that it require, it's hard to get things through and that's good. But at the same time, does that make it difficult to react to things that are changing so quickly in cyber and social media, in our online connected lives? Are we left being in a constant state of being reactive to things rather than being able to get in front of things? And that's something I think about quite a lot. You mentioned like a thought experiment. Imagine a spy from the Cold War and telling them about the, the modern iPhone or the Android. I mean, can you imagine telling the, the founders about the type of world their descendants would be living in? I mean, the Constitution is, yeah, I don't know. It's from a particular place in time and it's obviously, you know, stood the test of time. But there are, you know, these changes that are going on now that are very difficult to deal with. The context is important, I think. These are people who, as progressive as they were, as brilliant as they were, and careful as they were in putting together the foundations of this experiment that is the United States of America, you know, these were also people who did not have indoor plumbing. They went from point A to point B uh, on horseback. They did not have antibiotics. You know, all of these things of modern life that we take for granted they did not enjoy. It's valuable to try to put some of the decisions they made in that context. Could they imagine communications happening at the pace that they, that they do? It, when word had to come from overseas and it would take six weeks for a letter to come by ship from Europe, and now you and I are speaking instantaneously, you know, and, and we could be on opposite sides of the world and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be any burden to our communication. So, uh, yeah, how, how would it be? I guess what I'm saying is the, the, the work that they put into those founding documents, could they have imagined the place where we are right now? And to their credit, they put in, they, uh, to, to some degree, they knew this and that's why we can have things like amendments. But again, it's not easy, and those things happen slowly. And I guess uh, that, is, that is both a bug and a feature. And the next couple of questions, I want to leverage some of your expertise for SpyCast listeners. I guess the first one is, what book or books would you recommend people read to get up to speed with cyber? What are some of the things that have really had a lasting effect on you? One of my favorite books of all time, not just with tech, but it just in general, it's a book called Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution, I believe is the subtext. It's written by Stephen Levy, who's a well-known uh, author and journalist. And it really chronicles the early years of tech, 
the Steve Wozniaks of the world, the Steve Jobses of the world, the the, the foundation of, of these companies, how they got their start. Not only is it a real page turner, but it gives you a good idea of where we came from, how, because many of the things that are happening now came from decisions that were made either intentionally or just the way things kind of worked out back then. So from a history point of view, I think that's a really interesting book. There are lots of, of books available today and, you know, people send us, I get new books practically every day from folks who want us to interview their authors on our shows. Countdown to Zero Day is a good book. Thomas Ridd's books are quite good. A Sandworm book is quite good. Cuckoo's Egg, I can't remember. There's quite a few of them. I wish I had more time to read them than I do, but those are a couple that I've enjoyed. If you're hosting half a dozen podcasts, your time is rather limited. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next question was, say it's someone who can give you advice about health and they say, Make sure that you exercise three times a week. Make sure you eat vegetables. Try to get eight hours sleep, etc. So someone that knows about how to look after yourself. So help our listeners understand about how to look after themselves digitally in a cyber sense. Um, are there particular things that you do? Do you have a, a routine? Do you always use a VPN? Do you always use Tor? Do you use particular browsers, particular emails? Help us understand how you keep healthy digitally in, in your own life. The bits of advice that I will share with our listeners that will get you most of the way there in terms of your cybersecurity, two main things. First of all, use a password manager. There are many of them out there, the LastPass, 1Password, there, there are open source ones, there are free ones. Use a password manager. What a password manager does for you is it makes it so that, number one, you don't know what your passwords are because now you can start using random strings of characters for your passwords. A good password manager will remind you and badger you when it sees that you're using the same password for multiple sites. You should never, ever, ever use the same password for multiple sites. And by using a password manager, that's an easy way to get around doing that. Most of the, in fact, I think the only password that I have memorized is the master password for my password manager. And that leads us to the second thing, which is to use multi-factor authentication. So a username and a password for anything that's important to you is simply not enough. So you should have uh, multi-factor authentication that can be uh, an SMS message that gets sent to you when you log in to somewhere from a new computer or a new location. Many people will rightly point out that an SMS isn't the most secure way to send you a message, and that is absolutely right, but it is way better than nothing at all. Other ways are there are password generators you can get for your devices. Most of the password manager companies have their own. Google has one. There are many of them out there. And then also security tokens, you know, security keys like a, a YubiKey, that, that sort of thing. That is highly secure as well. So for things like your bank account, any account that's dealing with money, your credit cards, again, if it's important to you, it deserves to have more than just a username and password. And, and the data proves this. You know, the, the reports that Google has put out um, say that if you're using multi-factor authentication on an account, it almost never gets compromised. Um, also, I'll point out that one of your most important accounts 
if not the most important account, is your email account because that's where everything else flows through. So when people are trying to do password resets on some of your other accounts, let's say I'm trying to reset the, I'm a bad guy and I'm trying to reset the password on your bank account. Well, that's going to flow through your email account. So if I have control of your email account and I trigger a password reset, I'm going to get that email and I'm going to say, yes, this is Andrew and I would absolutely like you to change my password, right? So don't think your email isn't important. You absolutely should have multi-factor on your email as well. So just doing those few little things will get you most of the way there. I understand it is really hard. Almost everybody reuses passwords, but you just got to break yourself of the habit. You have to you have to approach it in a different way. Um, and also, uh, you're not nearly as clever as you think you are. Uh, if you're using the same password and like appending a, a, a couple of letters to it or a couple of numbers to it, you know, if you're, if, uh, believe me, the, the bad guys are on to you. Uh, they, they, those, those little simple patterns are not going to stop anyone from figuring out how to get into your stuff. For browsing the internet and so forth, what would you advise there? Do you always use Tor or do you always use a VPN? Do you use a particular browser? I don't. I like to use the Brave browser, which is a privacy-focused browser. I use iOS devices, so I use Safari there. I think that's enough. If I were doing something where security was important or if I was in a place where I thought perhaps there was a heightened risk, I would use a VPN. I, for example, I would never use public Wi-Fi. Let's say I'm in an airport or something. That's a place where I would use a VPN. But at home, uh, at work, where I have a pretty good idea what's going on here, I generally don't feel the need to use a VPN. Again, using a privacy-focused browser seems to be enough for me. I think you can go overboard with this stuff, and, and an important part of it is understanding what your risk profile is. The flip side of that is you should not think that no one is interested in your stuff because someone is interested in your stuff. Your stuff has value. Even your, your name, address, phone number, social security number, your basic information, somebody can sell that even if it's for 10 cents. If they gather up enough of them, we're talking real money. So don't think that you're not interesting, but at the same time, most people who are at risk are aware of that and either you know, know themselves or they have a team who helps them address the particular risks that they may face. I think it's like general hygiene. You wash your hands, try not to cough on anybody else, you cover your mouth when you cough, you, all those sorts of things. You shower and bathe regularly, try to eat right, stay relatively healthy, and, and that gets you most of the way there. Is it foolproof? No, nothing is foolproof to a talented fool. Just doing the basics, I don't think you have to go overboard. And you spoke about the bad guys there. I just wondered if we could focus in on that briefly because out there, you know, for the people that are not, again, up on cyber, they hear of, you know, black hats, white hats, lots of different terminology. But I just wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Who are the bad guys out there? Are we talking about states with these farms of hackers? Are we talking about very sophisticated organized crime? Or are we just talking about, you know, the cyber equivalent of the person who goes to the, you know, the gas store with the born to lose tattoo and 
pulls out a gun in front of the camera and says, "Give me your money." Like, what are the right. what, what are the people that are that are out there that that our listeners need to think about? There is a whole spectrum of actors out there who engage at all those different levels, and it really does kind of parallel traditional crime. So you do have low-level actors, and and they can be out there. Everything from folks who are crypto mining, which is you know using your computer, they'll get unauthorized access to your computer, and they'll just use your computer's processing power to mine cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And you may not even be aware that they're there, but they're using your computer, they're using your electricity to do the things they do. They try to fly under the radar because they don't want to be detected. They want to be able to use your system and have you not notice. So some of them will even just operate at night or they'll sense when you're not using the computer and that's when they'll do their thing. And then you get into, you know, ransomware operators. You get the low-level ransomware operators, which is kind of where ransomware started. And those are folks who will get access to your computer and they will lock it down and start encrypting things. And they'll say to you, if you want your stuff back, give me 100 bucks or give me 500 bucks or something like that. But ransomware is grown much more sophisticated. There are folks out there who are targeting businesses with laser precision and demanding millions of dollars and getting it. And those folks do their homework, both from a technical point of view and, and studying the companies that they're going after to make sure that uh, they have the resources that they're after. So that's more like organized crime. And then you get up to the nation states, and that's where they're primarily interested in espionage. There are some exceptions to that. The North Koreans, for example, because of their own unique situation of being shut out from the rest of the world, they do actually need to generate revenue based on their state-sponsored cybercrime. And so they do. But most of the other nation states, the Russians, the Chinese, they're mostly interested in espionage. You have situations, for example, with the Russians where you may have some of their actors who are moonlighting. They're off the clock. They're doing things like ransomware. And the government kind of looks the other way. And this was one of the hot topics when President Biden met with President Putin recently for, to say, Biden said to Putin, you've got to knock this off. You, you can't keep turning a blind eye to this stuff. This is serious. You know, we had the, the shutdown of a pipeline here in the U.S. because of a cyber attack. And that's serious stuff. We're getting to the point where we, we can say there has been loss of life. So uh, I saw some folks comment that, you know, the conversations we're having about cyber are at, at the nation state level are conversations that we used to have about things like nuclear weapons, that it's it's been elevated to that level. And we're talking about critical infrastructure and so forth. Yeah, there's all sorts of folks from the highest level nation state actors down to the smash and grab criminals who are you, you know trying to skim from credit card machines and ATMs and everything in between. And for the organized crime, who are the, you know, some of the stories that you guys may have covered, who are the types of people that we're talking about here? Are we talking about traditional mafia or are we talking about something else? And and how do they recruit? Where do they get this skill set from? You know, I guess, you know, just to be slightly flippant for a second, for many of our listeners that, that know some of this stuff through popular culture, it's difficult for them to imagine someone with a tracksuit and the white sleeveless vest and a meatball parm sandwich in one hand and <laughs> sitting hacking on the other. Because like, there's a particular skill set that goes along with that, right? There is. 
To talk about the organized crime component of this, one of the things that we've seen, for example, is ransomware as a service. So there are organizations out there where if you don't have the technical capabilities, you can hire someone who does. And they have an affiliate model. So it's like opening your own McDonald's, right? You have a franchise, but the McDonald's mothership provides you with all everything you need, you, all the equipment you need, all of the branding you need, all of the, they'll, they'll send you leads. You can purchase all of that stuff, run your own criminal organization, but all of the technical side of it, you're jobbing out. You're paying someone else to do that. And that could be the, the criminal masterminds. And in exchange for that, they get a cut of everything you take. They've got this broad, high-level business model where they're making more money that way and, and I suppose less effort than if they were out doing it themselves. It's also interesting to ponder, does that, does that put them at more or less risk for running afoul of law enforcement? It, it's hard to say, but I think that's a component of it as well. If you know, I'm not actually the one out there stealing things. I'm the one providing the tools for the people who steal things. And they find each other on dark web forums. There are hacker underground forums where these people meet and exchange information and, and trade their wares. And of course, cryptocurrency has made so much of this possible because that's the way that the money gets sent around internationally. It's a way to send money around that's sort of separate from the banking system, the, the world, the global banking system. So there's been a lot of call from folks saying that we need to put better controls on that because that's been a real enabler for these folks to be able to pay for things. Can you give us an example? Like what would be an example of one of these motherships that sends out hired guns to other organizations? Or is there is there one that you have covered on any of your shows that our listeners could maybe Google and find out a little bit more about? When you were talking there, it almost reminded me of some of the organizations in the James Bond novels and, and movies where you have a non-state almost enterprise that is happy to hire out their services to, you know, bad guys. Here's a, a good example from recent news. You know, we had the Colonial Pipeline shut down here in the U.S., and that was identified by the U.S. FBI as being the responsibility of the Dark Side Ransomware Group. It's an organization called Dark Side, and it's yes, and it's it is a very James Bond sounding organization. These these groups love to. Well, either the groups or the people who study them give them interesting names. That's a whole nother conversation that in cybersecurity, we can't seem to settle on one name for any organization. However, <laughs> the dark side group was an affiliate. They had an affiliate program. And what's interesting about the Colonial Pipeline incident is that it seems as though it was one of their affiliates who hit Colonial Pipeline, perhaps unintentionally. Right. They were out just sort of seeing who they could hit and doesn't seem like they were targeting the pipeline specifically. It was not their intention to, to shut down critical infrastructure. They were just looking for businesses with money. And they happened upon Colonial Pipeline, took down almost half of the fuel supply to the east coast of the United States for a few days. People who run Dark Side started backpedaling 
and saying, oh, okay, haha, this was, uh, well, this was one of our affiliates and we did not intend to do this. And here are the keys to unlock everything. We, it, it seems as though they sensed that they had gone a little too far, that their affiliate had gone too far. And so that this could bring undue attention on them from the powers that be, which it absolutely did, right? To have our president talking to their president about this specific incident and saying, knock it off, that turns the heat on. And that's not what they want. There's stories and speculation that the dark side folks shut down that affiliate. Sometimes what you'll see happen is when the heat gets put on these organizations, they'll shut down for a little while, they'll rename themselves, they'll rebrand themselves and come back under a different name to try to let the heat blow over. But that's probably the most well-known recent example of a, an organization running under an affiliate program and how inadvertently it caused harm and also brought the heat on them. And just to track that down a little bit more and, and give it a human face, well, you know, where are we talking here is, is dark side? Are they based in Russia? Are they a group of people? Are they affiliated with the state? Or is it, you know, Russian mafia that hire a bunch of people out of college to do certain things or yeah how does it all shake out yes <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. so dark side is suspected to be russian and most of these organized crime style the ones who are after money the vast majority of them are russian the organized ones the high functioning highly skilled ones they russia seems to be where they come out of and again, the Russian government turns a, bl a blind eye on them as long as they don't go after Russians. And so one of the interesting things about that is you'll see in many of these uh, ransomware packages, for example, it will check to see if your computer's primary language is Russian. It will check to see if you're using a Cyrillic keyboard. And if you are, yeah, if you are, it leaves you alone. It moves on because they don't want to mess with the, the homeland. That's how they get the hammer brought down on them. So in this case, yes, almost certainly Russia. Again, it's hard to know how many of these people are folks who are working for the state and are moonlighting, doing jobs on the side. How many of them for which this is their primary job? Do they sometimes help the government when the government needs help with things? There's a lot of crossover with the Russians uh, in particular, it's pretty fuzzy as to who is sponsored, who's state-sponsored, who's state-tolerated, that sort of thing. It sounds a little bit like when you were talking about Biden's conversation with Putin, it's a little bit like drug cartels, they realize that there's no mileage in killing an FBI agent or a DEA agent, so they're just, they're kind of like left off limits, but if they do, then they know the heat's coming on them. I mean, for some listeners, they'll be thinking, I mean, does Russia even have a sense of what's too far? Like, why why would this be considered too far, given some of the other things that they're up to? Well, I think the, the too far is that it attracts the attention of the highest levels of the U.S. government. And so that could bring down things like sanctions and non-cyber responses. The code for that is a kinetic response, which is, you know, guns and missiles, right? That's happened. There was uh, the incident with uh, where the Israelis took out a building that was hosting folks who 
they felt were coming after them from a cyber point of view. There's the whole Stuxnet thing where the legend is and the pretty strongly supported story is that you know, we took out the Iranian centrifuges using malware so they couldn't enrich uranium. So when you get to the point where your adversaries are going beyond cyber to respond to the things you're doing in the cyber domain, that gets the attention of the highest levels of your own government. And that is not the sort of attention you want as even an organized criminal, right? You want to just be able to do your thing, not cause any trouble, make your money, tip the appropriate people you have to tip to get them to leave you alone and go about your business. And as with the Colonial Pipeline incident, I think inadvertently they went somewhere they didn't intend to go and it went too far and the hammer came down. And just a couple of final questions to wrap up, Dave. One of them was, you know, with you guys at Cyberwire, you know, doing the quote-unquote Lord's work, do you, are you ever the focus of any of these malevolent actors out there who are thinking they're out there evangelizing and keeping people safe or going to bring them down a peg or two? I mean, are these discussions that you have internally or are you kind of like part of that game as well? You are civilians and you don't go after them or help us understand that? It is a conversation that we have had. It is something that's on our radar that we could put a bullseye on our backs by reporting on things. Um, we try to be fair. We try to be uh, as accurate as possible. We don't deal in gossip or speculation or innuendo as much as possible. So I think that keeps those folks away from us. Sure, it's a concern. And so we take appropriate security measures here to try to keep ourselves safe and, and prevent them from coming at us. At the same time, I don't think we should take ourselves too seriously that we would be a specific target or you know, I don't want to be paranoid or, or have any undue worry about that. But it's definitely something that we think about. It's part of the planning that we do to keep ourselves safe here. And having listened to your show, it's quite matter of factual. It's not strongly editorialized one way or another. And it's not, yeah, it's not sensational. It's more just here's information that you need to operate in the world. Yeah, we try to be respectful of people's time. That is more and more I'm coming to believe that's like the most valuable resource because there's, you know, there's nobody's making more of it. We try to give people what they need in, in the little, in, in, in a very concise way. And final question, you know, just when you were talking there, it made me think about international relations has been a, amongst great powers, it's been a carefully choreographed uh, performance where there's certain rules and you do this and we do that and, you know, involving espionage or, or the military. But with cyber, it's like the old rule book has, has been ripped up and I'm sure there are some listeners to SpyCast who are thinking, what, what on earth are the Russians doing? You know, this is going to provoke a war, interfering in the US election, shutting down a pipeline on the East Coast. I mean, you could set off a chain of events that could easily escalate out of control. And in the past, that might have had certain consequences. But when you're talking about nuclear armed great powers that are engaged across the world, I mean... The stakes are really high. Like, what's your kind of read on the rules of that game as it's been played out or the lack of rules? 
I think you're right on. And, and I think the thing about cyber is that there's a lack of proportionality there. In other words, if I want to exert my power in the real world, building an aircraft carrier is a great way to do that because I can take my military anywhere I want it to be and I can exert my force remotely. To do that in the cyber realm, I don't need to build an aircraft carrier. I don't need to have the resources, the know-how, the engineering, the time, the money, all those sorts of things to build an aircraft carrier. Don't need any of that. So smaller countries have access to the same sorts of tools. And since we have connected the entire world via the internet, they have access to all the same systems. And so that's how... Uh, a poor country like North Korea can be so active in cybercrime. It's how a country like Russia, who, if you look at Russia's GDP compared to other nations of the world, they're small, but they have an outsized influence when it comes to cyber. Let's not discount the fact that, yes, they, they have nuclear weapons, and so they're a military force to be reckoned with as well. But in the cyber realm, I think the big change, as you say, is that it's it's disproportional. It doesn't take a huge investment to stand up a capable cyber team that's able to have influence and power around the world. I think we've yet to see what the capabilities of some nation states are. I think I think the United States has been very effective in limiting the view of what our true cyber capabilities are. And so could we turn the lights off in another nation if we wanted to? I suspect we probably could. I suspect for many reasons we, we choose not to do that. And, and one of them is that we don't want the other folks to know what our capabilities are. To not have them revealed is a type of power all in, in itself. Yeah, I think it's a different world. And I think we are slowly but surely adjusting to that world. I think as we see the next generation come up and take their place in our governments, in our societies, the, the people for whom these things are reflexive, the digital natives, hopefully we'll see a better understanding and we'll see how society changes because of it with people who come up with different attitudes towards things like privacy and collaboration and communication. It's all going to be different. It's going to be different than it is for folks like you and me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time. I feel like I could speak to you for hours, but yeah, time is uh, the most important commodity. So <laughs> yeah, let's wrap it up there. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.